Historia. Welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History. I'm Jake. I'm Eric. I'm Cameron. Hey guys, how's it going? Fantastic. Good. 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 Um, so we're doing episode six of Pandemic to Progress, and uh, we kind of saved this one for last. It's on education and uh, how this pandemic has changed education already, and how it's going to continue to change education possibly for generations. Um, and so. Us all, either currently being a teacher or former teachers, we all have a whole lot to say and, and have some real-world experience to apply to that, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but before uh, before we get into the topic at hand, just a real quick, um, how you guys been? It's been a couple weeks. Mainly my fault, because I wasn't yeah. around, so yeah. sorry about that. Nobody wants to ask me about my trip. Or are you too upset? No, how was your trip? How was, was your trip nice. to, to Wisconsin? It was to nice. not Eric's house. To not, yeah. not California. Yeah. Whatever. Well, there was no gourmet gas stations, so that was disheartening. Oh, how was Yeko? I, I didn't go. It's wow. Pandemic. I'm not going to the Echo. That's Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> For a um, moment, so I had thought about, I had forgotten about the pandemic because the Echo yeah, brings back I such know. good memories. Sadly, sadly, the Echo is still. Suffering. So at Madison and Green Bay, or just Madison? Just Madison. Yeah, but it's funny that you, I was just mentioning the gas stations, and when I got into Wisconsin, I stopped at the gas station um, that morning and grabbed a, a soda and and then a, like a little one of those pre-made sandwiches or whatever. And and then I looked at the cooler, and this is something I miss about Wisconsin so much is that every gas station has tons of cheese curds that you can just grab, like. They're always available. It's like the Takis of the Midwest. Um, so that was nice. Got to see my uncle. Um, actually got to see a couple of my uncles, my aunt, cousin, um, her kids. It was a really it was a really good time. Had a great Friday night fish fry. Um, yeah, it was, it was good. It was good to kind of get away because it's probably the last chance we'll have, at least until the end of the year. We, we aren't going to make any more big trips um, was it was it just you or did you take your whole family no it was just me um my wife you know she went to visit her family in june um and she went by herself and i watched the kids that weekend and and so this was kind of my turn to to go do that we weren't gonna fly the kids um because mm-hmm. flying the kids under the best circumstances is not ideal um so and it was interesting because it was both my Flight to and from Wisconsin were packed, packed to the gills. Mm. Um, everybody wore a mask. That, that was fine. But, I mean, they were booked up flights. And it was funny. The day I left, I flew into O'Hare and drew, drove to Madison. And that's where I flew back out. Um, and the day I left, I think the order went out in Wisconsin that no or any travelers from Arizona would have to be under a two-week quarantine. So I just made it. Like, I just got out to visit in time before I would have had to quarantine before I could even do anything in Wisconsin. So it was kind of 
lucky for me. Yeah, when I was looking over the photos that you took in Madison, it's just mm -hmm. the obviously I live in Arizona, so there's not a lot of uh, seasons here. Yeah. But the starkness of, you know, my experience with with Madison is a foot of snow on the ground and you yeah. know, below zero. And seeing those photos, it's just unbelievable. You forget that other places have seasons. You know, I've been in, in Arizona long enough that I, I forget that there's seasons other than summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like Arizona, especially Phoenix, is like summer and then less hot summer. But it's yeah. still summer. Like, it's never not <laughs> summer in Arizona. When, right. when it's winter in December and it only gets up to 80, the rest of the country would kill to have those temperatures. Um any time of the year. So you guys hit 118 yesterday, didn't you? God, yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. Yeah. It was terrible. So. But my AC hasn't broken in uh, a full two weeks, so knock on wood. That's what matters. So, so how you guys been? You ended up to anything in the past two weeks? Yeah, I got away to California. It's been the first oh, time you? in a long time. Um, so and yeah, you didn't I go was, visit Eric as a crow oh. fly. What? I was I was only about fifty <laughs> miles away from Eric. Oh, there's just a lot of mountains in between us. Gosh. <laughs> I thought about just uh, taking a selfie and saying, "Hey, you know, here's where I am." But that's awesome. Or were you back home? Yeah, I was back home. Yeah. Yeah, we we should have met up in like uh, I can't remember Mojave or something. Uh, Sounds lovely. Tehachapi, yeah. Yeah. Barstow, all <laughs> those wonderful go. places. Just yeah. on the road next to Edwards Air Force Base. Yeah, we could have done that. <laughs> we could have visited a, a gourmet gas station. Yeah. They're not out there. They don't, they don't uh, exist in Barstow. No, no, just in, just in Bakersfield. <laughs> How about you, Eric? Anything going on the past couple weeks? Not much. Not much. Um, we, uh, we started doing some planning here. Um, we're gonna. We planned a trip at the end of August to go. We're gonna rent a cabin out at a campground just for a weekend. We haven't gotten away at all during this pandemic, so we're gonna do that. Um, just get the kids outdoors, out somewhere, and kind of enjoy the mm -hmm. weekend. Uh, at some point, I'm coming back to Arizona for a weekend to pick up. Um, a tent trailer from my parents. So we're going to start using that out here to go camping. Awesome. So we're hmm. just trying to like plan that out and kind of get an idea of what we want to do with that and something we want to start doing this year. That's Does that cool. mean that we could actually do a podcast all in person in the same room for the first time? I mean, if you're going to be out here in Phoenix. Could we do I, it in the tent trailer? Could we Ooh. do it in the... On location, <laughs> I we could be in my parents' driveway. Um, I mean, listen, if you guys wanted like, to, like, uh, what is it? The coast to coast guy, he would say from an undisclosed location, Art Bell, unknown. Yes, Art Bell. Oh, I mean, it'd have to be late at night. We could do that. It'll be on. My guess is I'll be driving out like on a Saturday morning and being there Saturday afternoon, kind of figuring it out. And so I'd be there Saturday night and then driving back Sunday. So we could. We could. I, I think it's great. I'm That'd be so groundbreaking. I'll, I'll bring my stuff so we can be ready to do it's that. It'll be hard to get Nick out there. That'll be tough. Mm. Flights are pretty but, cheap right now. Yeah. Um, 
Awesome, man. That's so cool. I'm legit excited now for you to come. Do you know when that's going to be? Roughly? My guess is uh, my dad has to take care. Like, it's a 25-year-old tent trailer, but it's only been used a handful of times. So it just needs, like, tires and things to get checked before mm-hmm. I take it. So, um, you know, it's my parents taking really good care of it. So it's in good condition. Um, <clears throat> and as our first foray into some type of RV camping, um, being that it'll be free. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah. I mean, we'll take it. I, I remember camping in that thing and it was, you know, there's a, there's a king size bed on one side, a queen size on the other, and then like a twin where the table is. So, um, yeah, I will try it out and we'll put some miles on it and try to get out and enjoy the outdoors. That sounds awesome, man. Um, yeah, so I, I think uh, it's kind of interesting you, you bring that up because we, the last time we we did the podcast, we were talking about uh, entertainment and how we got to be creative during a, this pandemic to, to kind of do things that we would normally do as far as entertainment, like movies or going to tourist traps or like Disney World or Universal Studios. And I think, Cameron, you alluded to the fact that getting outside more was something that had happened in your family. Um, and so similarly, I think you're kind of taking that same vein, Eric, which is really cool. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, without further ado, uh, let's get on to the topic of the day, education. Um and specifically how this pandemic has changed education, I guess, already, um, currently, how, how different schooling is um, at every level, um, from preschool, daycare to universities. And um, there's been a lot going on. And it seems like, Eric, you said before we, we started recording, it, almost every day there's some th- something new coming out, either... Um, Certain unions are are making requests, or school districts are changing their directives, or yeah, requests. Uh, are that's we, what we'll call them. Are we going back to mostly uh, peaceful requests? Yeah. Um. Are we going back to school full time? Um, is it going to be uh, distance learning or online education? What like? And every state does things differently, and and many of the districts within each state do things differently, and so it's just been this constant flux of how are we going to go back to school um but then also i want to talk about is once this crisis is over and things get back to normal whatever that normal is um how will education in america continue to change and continue to be different because i i think much like many of the other things we talked about i think going back to the way things were isn't going to happen um and so I, I think those are the two main topics I want to hit. But I think, first of all, let's kind of talk about how things are different now, the changes we're seeing now, and I guess our reactions to that. And then we'll get into once the pandemic is over. So um, with that, I, I guess I don't have any initial thoughts. So I'll, I'll hand it off well, to you, Well, I, I, think, I think one of the important things to really consider when we talk about education is we have to look at where we were six months ago. Okay. Um, and kind of look at the status quo. Um, I, I maybe I hesitate to use that word status quo, but you know where we were six months ago. 
90% of K-12 students in the United States were educated in a public school setting of some sort. And the remaining 10%, a large majority were in either uh, private, parochial, Christian, Catholic, Lutheran uh, schools, um, some, you know, secular private schools, charter schools, and homeschooling. And so that's kind of that's kind of where things stood before this happened. And we kind of, you know, the past twenty years. Um, I'm about to go into my 17th year of education. Uh, past 20 years, at least from what I understand, and probably further beyond that, is there's always been some contention between traditional public education at the district level um, and state level and all those different levels and all the other settings of school mm-hmm. um, because they're vying for seats. They're vying for bodies. Um, for public schools... A student in the seat who's enrolled and in attendance is money in their pocket. Uh, and that's not a malicious thing. That's just simply that's how most districts allot their funding. The students have to be not only enrolled but also present. So attendance matters. Um, and so students who disenroll from public schools for whatever reason is money away from that district or money away from that school. And so there's always been some contention between, you know, public schools and other types of schools. Um, but, it, you know, there's always kind of, there's been a stabilization uh, over the past few years, I'd say. Um, although I'd say unions and public school teachers generally push, and I, and I had this experience in a... Uh, you know, my daughter's soccer team when she played, uh, the coach was a public school teacher. and One of the parents was a public school teacher, but she knew I, I didn't teach in public schools. And, um, you know, she started saying, you know, private school teachers don't need to be this. They don't need to be this. They're not qualified. And the parent's like, well, Eric, what do you think? How does your private school operate? And I was just like, well, I mean, I, I, I guess I... I'd say I'm qualified. I have a bachelor's and a master's degree. I have a handful of other certifications. I mean, I don't know what would not make me qualified. So, you know, I've had those interesting conversations too. But now, I think things are changing very rapidly. And there's a lot more contention uh, between, especially the unions themselves, and in particular, some teachers who are very pro-union uh, and kind of the the talking points they're taking towards education uh, versus you know what I'm seeing on some of the the Facebook groups and Twitter groups for uh, private and parochial education and homeschooling there's a lot there's a lot flying around and like you said it changes from day to day so it's hard to tell what's going to happen yeah and and I think it's interesting Eric and, and- all three of us are, are private school guys, um, you know, quote unquote, that, that we believe in the private school system. But, you know, very much there is that divisiveness between public and private. And I have felt like 
there was a movement to do your duty, quote unquote, and send your kids to public school. And, you know, because of the funding, because this school is going to get worse for everybody if you don't send your kids to that school. And, you know, the mask thing is very um, divisive, but schools are starting to be that way too. Everybody's got an opinion and everybody, you know, that can get pretty contentious pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, um, and charters kind of throw a whole, whole other, I guess, monkey wrench into the mix because it's no longer public versus private. It's now public versus charter versus private. And they're mm-hmm. all kind of working, if not against each other, definitely independent from one another. Um, and, and another thing you brought up, Eric, that I thought was interesting is you said 90% before the pandemic, 90% of all students were educated in public schools. I would say there's probably similar number numbers, but probably about 90% or more of all students were also educated in a building yeah. prior to this pandemic. And I think that's another oh, thing. Well, that, well, it's hit more like 99. I mean, yeah. because when you talk about the, the private schools, whether they're parochial or, or not parochial, and whether it's a charter or, or, or just a private, um, I, I don't know what the actual percentage of homeschool students are, but those are the ones that generally are not educated on site. Now, there's some online schools, online charters, and online public schools, but I, that's probably closer to 1% that are not educated on a site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see so much of the push being made by these online schools, we forget I think the average person in public forgets that education is an industry. Education is a business, and there's a lot of money at stake um, in each of those three different uh, avenues, I guess. Yeah, and I, I just looked up, I mean, this is not going to school entirely, but approximately one-third of all students take at least one online class. Um, but again, that's just... That's, that's K twelve. Yeah, that's K twelve. That could I'm be, guessing that's that could be a bunch of high, high school heavy. Yeah, yeah. probably not too many kindergartners. Credit. Yeah, so it's that it doesn't say how many are doing all their education online, um, but there is a significant chunk that do some sort of online learning. Um, but the, the the point being is, prior to March, we'll say, everybody went to a building to go to school, and everybody went into a classroom to do their education. Um, of those, the overwhelming majority went to public schools. And I think uh, one of the articles I looked up said about 6% of students are educated at a charter. Um, that would leave about 4% educated um, in some sort of private or, or parochial school. Um, so that, that kind of gives you some rough numbers of, of what well, we're looking at. Yeah, you know, we talk about students going to a building, we're also talking about there's a component to education which includes supervision which again we might get into discussion about what's what's the real purpose of education um, regardless of what we can agree on as being the big purpose one of the services provided with education as we've seen over the past 150 years in this country is a form of supervision mm-hmm. uh, and with that comes also kind of behavior development and behavior learning. Um, so it's not just that they go to a building, it's that 
they're at a building and supervised mm-hmm. by adults that generally are trained in how to deal with children of all these different ages and their behaviors and how to model things for them and how to um, provide examples and help them work in social groups, right? So mm-hmm. um, that whole piece has been taken away from education or taken out of education during this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny. Well, And I guess there's a lot we can get into and in how things are going to change. So I'll put a pin on what I want to say there. Um, but, you know, I think now that we kind of have a general idea of what we were what are we now like what what has changed now and Cameron and I aren't still in in teaching right now um, but you are and um, how are things different at your profession personally and what are you I guess what are you seeing um, universally or trends across the country that have kind of popped up to you good or bad or just interesting well so I'll just start with myself um you know we are we we're intending to go back in person we're committed to going as far as we can within the state's guidelines we want to go in person because we know that at my school and, and generally in the schools that uh the three of us have taught at one of the objectives is not simply educating the mind, but also educating, uh, you know, the body and the soul. And a lot of that requires face-to-face interactions um, in groups. Um, and so we're, we're committed to that because we know it's really hard to maintain some of that virtually or by distance. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me personally, um, one of the things that I've kind of worked on this summer is building some of my coursework. Uh, and all of it was digital already, but it, you know, it was just documents. So I've spent some time building, uh, using some tools. We use Google Classroom. Uh, I wouldn't say it was the ideal system. Um, there's some other ones out there that I'm, I'm looking at, some learning management systems, LMSs, and trying to look at how, how to build my coursework on there so that whether we go back in person or go back uh, teaching virtually, like live streaming, um, the coursework is, is all in one place and is accessible to students um, and is, is kind of like laid out in a way that, that students can, can use it and we can also discuss online if we need to and and we can kind of track things better so whether we go back in person i'll still use that if we have to shut down or we don't go back in person i'll still use that so i'll be working off the same platform the difference is will i be in a room with these students or not being in the room allows for uh more enriching activities although i'm still limited i mean i'm thinking about some of the things that i used to do uh, and i'm not going to be able to do them just because they require students to gather around a single surface, a table. And that's going to be one thing that we're going to be de-emphasizing or working away from um, because shared services are problematic. 
Um, so I'm just trying to reimagine some activities because I think as I've always taught, I wanted things to be very active and back and forth. Um, so that's where I, the, my biggest adjustment is how to keep the engagement up uh, when there can't be that kind of activity in the room. And uh, I think that's, on a personal level, I think that's probably one of the more dramatic shifts that a lot of teachers and a lot of schools are going to be going through is how do I provide the same content in an engaging and meaningful way than I did before and there's going to be a lot of people that struggle with that I, I think that's going to be a big hurdle to get over and how different districts and how different states respond to that question is going to really push things forward generations from now I think that's going to be the biggest you know how how do teachers deal with it individually and then how does that shape school policy in the future there's going to be a big change that I don't I don't know what the answer is I don't know if anybody knows what that answer is going to be but it's definitely going to be something that we're all going to watch and, and I think it's interesting too um not every teacher takes that approach of, hey, how can I get better? How can I tweak things? How can I meet the needs in this changing world? I think, um, you know, and I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself for, for the future, but this is going to likely weed out teachers that are there for the wrong reasons. Um, because of, that exists in every profession, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, but when we talked about the teachers' unions just briefly earlier, um, there are teachers out there that are trying to do whatever they can to not show up in the fall or are making demands that are, are very likely to be, to very unlikely to be met. And, you know, from a parent perspective, a lot of parents are like, yeah, we're just in, in survival mode. So I'm, I'm not in a classroom anymore. I'm not employed by a school, but I am in edu education. And um, I talk with parents oftentimes of children that are struggling academically. And school is, is kind of an afterthought right now. For, for so many parents whose children are struggling, it's, wow, this is actually a good thing that we can take our foot off the gas pedal and they don't maybe have that long-term perspective. They're just grateful for the break because they're working themselves. Um, and, and I think that gets lost too often in this whole thing. You know, you look at John Q. Public looks at the typical kid and the, the average kid that just gets through school and doesn't necessarily have issues or, or problems, but there are so many kids. You know, if you look at the numbers, I, I think it's 14% um, receive special services, be it an IEP or, or special education or that kind of thing. That's a big number, you know, when you mm -hmm. extrapolate that nationwide. Um, those are the kids I think that are really going to get lost in the shuffle, unfortunately, because of overwhelmed teachers and overwhelmed parents and an overwhelmed system. Yeah, that's, that's another part of the, the kind of status quo discussion is some of the things that schools do that aren't education. That includes in some places, uh, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for some kids in some, in some neighborhoods. Um, they're providing a place that's 
that's away from and safe from, you know, could be their, their neighborhood, their community, even their families. Um, eight hours away from that can be instrumental in, in helping them kind of figure out a path out of, uh, you know, detrimental behaviors. Um, and those were all parts that they were all built in and, and there's still, I mean, you know, every district that, that serves those meals still has to keep serving those meals through the pandemic. So while teachers in many cases are, or teachers unions are claiming that their teachers feel unsafe and that they can't go back to work, um, it is a health and safety issue. The, the food workers from those schools and districts are still working because they have a mandate to keep providing that food for free. Mm-hmm. And so here we have this shift in what does it mean to provide free access to public education? Yeah. And the argument that I'm hearing is as long as we're providing the content and the instruction, the location and means of said instruction are are not are not deal breakers, I guess. Um, <clears throat> And so, you know, you can, you can do your job, which is a, a salaried job with benefits to, you know, I know teachers, we, we often say we don't pay teachers enough. Um, I've never really thought that I was unfairly compensated. I've never felt that way. Um, and my pay is usually, and you guys understand this, our pay has usually been about 90% of our local public system. So I've never felt unfairly compensated for my work. But to say that that the job is simply curating content and delivering it um, would be false. Mm-hmm. And when a local district in where I live, uh, when we shut down, and their response was simply the teachers made copies of all the remaining content and handed it to the students. And that was it. That was elastic for some of the teachers. I'm sure some teachers um, did go out of their way, made phone calls, made Zoom calls, conference with students, but some handed it off and said, that's it. And took two and a half months off. Yeah. And it's funny though, I I think what you you alluded to there, and I think this whole thing has taught me is how flat-footed our country got caught by this pandemic. Although, this is an aside, ironically enough, it was George W. Bush, I think in 2004 or five, that tried to create a pandemic response plan um, because he said this is devastating. And, and then it, for whatever reason, there's a bunch of reasons it didn't get built to fruition. Um, hmm. But I think in education especially, we're seeing how, and again, who predicts, who can predict a, a crisis like this, but how if something happens to where kids can't go to school in the future, school systems across the country, public, private, or otherwise, need to be able to look at it and say, well, how can we provide this service, because that's what it is, it's a service, mm-hmm. in unconventional circumstances. And 
I, th I think it's the duty of public schools because the whole mandate of a public school is to be able to provide free education to all. Um, but I also think it's within the prerogative of private and charter schools to also have that contingency plan um, because we're all learning as we go right now. Schools and administrators and teachers and students and parents are all figuring it out in the dark as we go. And some are doing a great job and others are failing miserably. And part of yeah. that is a, an, an unpreparedness, not necessarily their fault, because like I said, who can predict this? Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's definitely some, something we need to learn from. In some districts, you're going to find a very low rate of of connectivity, you know. So you can't do Zoom calls and conference mm -hmm. meetings uh, via some video conference uh, method. Uh, in other places, you you do have that, and that's just kind of, I mean, that's that's the way that that's generally going to be. Um, and and the flat footedness, you know, part of that is is we have these monoliths in in the United States. These model and I do keep harping on the unions, but it. And, and you said it uh, in our text this morning, Jake, you know, it's, it's not just education where we have these monolithic um, powerhouses, whether they're unions or lobby groups that just insist on, on fighting change. They resist change because that change threatens some sense of power or some power that they have. Um, yeah, that makes you, that makes you flat footed when the, health industry or the, the health insurance industry lobbies against rules and laws that would simplify um, purchasing of health insurance across state lines, uh, you know, it's doing so at, at for its own benefit. And, and again, I don't think that's necessarily malicious. It's, it's just kind of that invisible hand. Uh, teachers unions are going to operate in a way that protects themselves, the union, not necessarily the teachers. Um, protects the union and so it's going to say hold on we can't change too much keep your kid enrolled in public schools we know that we're providing half of the, the service being we, we're providing educational materials and content instruction but we're not providing the supervision or you know the the, the food service or the food well food service I mean that, that's mandated they have to but the teachers aren't providing the supervision um but we can't change any salaries. We can't change any pay. Um, you know, the same is true in like tax law. Like uh, there, there's a lobby of tax accountants, tax, um, yeah, tax accountants, uh, that basically the lobby fights against simplified tax code because if the tax code was simplified they'd and I could do it job. in five minutes, they'd be yeah. out of a job. I, I, again, this is just, we have this habit of this kind of protectionism in the United States, and it makes it hard in a lot of cases to pivot very quickly because we're trying to protect people and protect certain jobs. So um, it, it makes it it's a detriment or it's an obstacle to innovation. And I, would think and, and, and I know that um, Eric and, and Jake, both of you, this is years ago, you've, you've had that... Um, outlook of, of kind of looking at education in a through a capitalistic lens and you know what does capitalism do very well is innovate and hopefully one of these um, consequences of the pandemic in a positive way 
is going to be that, you know, a, a band of, of dual income families where both mom and dad are working decide to hire a teacher in the neighborhood to, you know, teach their children. And, and you know, perhaps we go back to a one-room schoolhouse type situation um, of, of yesteryear. And, you know, from a teacher's perspective, what are, what are the two biggest issues in, in public school? It's teacher pay and class size. But so each, I'm going go to jump on that because so I'm going to, I know where you're going and I want to get there. Okay. But I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw something your way that I threw to Jake. And it was a kind of an anecdote I heard today. And that a, a parent who, and they're not even a dual income family. They're, they're well off, I think. I, you know, it's, the, the story was kind of murky to me. But, um, so is this, this is an actual story? Yeah, yeah. So okay. I heard this from someone. Uh, basically, uh, one parent was very frustrated that school didn't look like it was going to be back in session. And was speaking to someone and asked if their, their significant other, who is a public school teacher would be willing to tutor their children full day, full time. Uh-huh. And so I ran this by Jake and, and I, and I kind of, it, it didn't strike me until much later after the conversation. So this would be a public school teacher who is pulling full pay and benefits to do distance learning. Uh, and I assume that they would have some work to do from eight to three, but during eight to three, they would also be tutoring privately, basically providing the daycare service to a handful of students in their home. And uh, my issue there is uh, the free market would allow for that. But my issue is an ethical issue being if you're a teacher who's being paid full pay and benefits and you're especially if you're arguing that you need to stay home for the health and safety of yourself and students, and then you are going the other direction and privately tutoring up to 10 students in your home at the risk of your own health and the health of those students, um, it's a big ethical issue for me. Now, you're getting at... I think that depends, though, on what your stance is you know if, if you're refusing to go back on to work on the grounds of pandemic then yes I, I have a total issue with that but if you know this is what my district is doing and i'm a, a teacher that that's not very well paid i'm going to be opportunistic there and say sure i'm going I'm to do this if i can earn some extra money yeah. I think it really varies on, on what your personal opinion is there. But yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Part of it, and I, I like that, and I think what we're about to get into is more of how things are going to be different post-pandemic, especially with what you're suggesting, camera, Cameron. And um, But I do want to say, and maybe this is going to upset Eric, in defense of unions... Um, Here we go. Especially these teachers is um you know a lot of times it's not the teachers saying i'm not going to go back but you still have to pay me 
It's they're doing what the union is directing them to do. Right. Yeah. Because that's how it works. Like, and that's unions. That's not just education unions. That's unions in the auto industry. That's police officers, firefighters, any sort of union. They get their direction from, from the, the union leaders and they say, all right, well, this is what we're doing. And that's part of how we negotiate and collectively bargain. And it's not like they say, I don't want to teach your kid, but I want these things. And that's the whole reason unions exist is they can collectively bargain with large corporations or in this case with state and local governments. Yeah. Um, and so we can, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Again, this is not necessarily teachers uh, doing this, although edgy Twitter is a light <laughs> With these yeah. teachers who who simply are demanding these things, and, and listen, I get it. That a lot of them are like, "Well, here's what my classroom looks like: three feet distance. Here's what my classroom looks like: six feet distance. It doesn't yeah. work. Uh, we need some directives." And and I get that. Um, there's some that are just like, "We refuse to go back." And and again, I, how much of that is genuinely from those teachers? How much of it is coming as directive from union? Um, but here's what the LA Unified Teachers Union put in their demands. And this was, mm-hmm. this was literally, we recorded two weeks ago, gentlemen. This was the next day. So I'm so glad we didn't cover it two weeks ago. LA Unified, for them to come back, they're demanding. The police be defunded. Medicare for all. And... Um, ban on charter schools in LA Unified. Now, which of those three, if any, have anything to do with COVID health and safety? And so someone asked me back in May, they said, what's your big black helicopter um, theory on all this? And I said, listen, I'm not wearing a tin hat on this. However, Unions and similar groups, corporations included, are opportunistic. And when a crisis hits, when the pressure is on, that's when you apply more pressure. Mm -hmm. And why the teachers union thinks defunding the police and Medicare for all and uh, banning charter schools is necessary to get them back to school is, is beyond me. But that's their pressure point, and they're going to use it. Um, because we're the big question here is, what are parents going to do in one, two, three, four weeks from now? Yeah. And where do these things go? Yeah. Um, and and I, you know, Cameron, you said we're generally take a capitalist approach, say a free market approach. I think capitalist uh, tends to say corporations are not mm, free of, of these same yeah. antics and, and tactics of using uh, large group power to push things. And, and that, that's where my argument, you know, unions, uh, when you want to have a private union with a corporation, go for it. When it's public union, the thing is the money never runs out because it can always tax us more. So that's where public unions tend to irritate me a little bit more. But, but, and maybe this is, we don't, oh, not so much now. Okay, we don't have an issue with firefighter unions. We used to not really have an issue with police unions, although the past six months has kind of changed a lot of people's views on. Oh, the firefighters unions. unions are getting used to uh, not being out in front right now, so. Yeah, so I think 
It's, I mean, uh, the Firefighters Union, they had a big issue back in the 80s with Reagan. Union. Yeah, and well, the air traffic controller, and yeah. then he fired them all. So, yeah, but, I, mean, I mean, the Firefighters Union as well. Like, yeah. He threatened them. So, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think the idea of unions collectively bargaining because is a bad thing, because if you're going to work for the government, then it's either you just take whatever the government gives you, which I, I guess is one thing, or you're, you're allowed to collectively bargain. And I don't think teachers being able to collectively bargain is a bad thing on its face. I do think, like anything, unions can become corrupt. And mm-hmm. in some instances, they can become too political. Um, and some of the demands you just listed for the LA Unified Union are definitely, those are political demands. They aren't necessarily... Actual. You you could argue Medicare for all hits um, uh, the uh, oh the uh, the the yeah the needs Mas, Mav, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, needs. Yeah. right so like okay Medicare for maybe that does okay all right I'll I'll there's one I'll say that one can be in your camp. Mm-hmm. But the others, you're, you're, but the others you're, are political, and they're yeah. political in nature, uh-huh. and that's an issue when any union or lobbying group or corporation um, throws things in, and they're really doing it more to signal to other camps, "Hey, I'm with you guys, so support me over here," and and that's a whole other episode we could go off on. Um, however, the the principle behind Bust those unions. unions. Yeah. And I guess maybe that's my background is when I grew up in Wisconsin is the teachers unions were very strong. And I remember then they would protest outside my school um, during collective bargaining. And then they did go you ever get teach. did you ever have class or were they just always protesting? Hey, we ranked way better <laughs> than Arizona. Um, <laughs> so but they that's what they do. They, they'd have their they'd stand outside the school before class started. They'd protest and they go in and they, they teach and then if the negotiations didn't do well then they would threaten to call in sick and then eventually they would threaten to if it continued to not go well um, then they would strike the funny thing is is they never really had to strike because they had a the union and the, the state government which was um, run by Tommy Thompson at this time a Republican governor had a good enough working relationship that they were able to get their jobs done and and still keep the schools open yeah. the whole point i'm saying is i don't like to paint unions with a broad brush as, i do obviously i know you do and that's why i'm saying this um however i i think before we went into the, the that talk what i thought was really interesting that you both were kind of talking about is what is what we're i think they're called micro schools now mm-hmm. right that's the new or, term or uh school pods or something like yeah. that where basically one teacher um, and a small group of students, be it in their neighborhood or, or whatever, um, they could get the funding for that student and teach. Um, so you're reducing overhead, you're reducing, obviously, classroom size, and you can personalize instruction. Teacher pay is going to go up. Here's what, here's some of the research I did, and, and some of these dates are from 2017. So nationwide... In 2017, on average, the United States spent $12,000, $12,201 per pupil. 
Now the lowest was in Utah. They spent just under 7,000. The highest was in New York. They spent $22,000 per student. Quite a range. Um, yeah, it's quite a range. Now the now there's some breakdown. So instructional spending in 2016, the lowest was Arizona. $4,000 were spent on actual instructions. So there's some breakdown that you know, there's special services, there's administration, there's other things outside of instruction. But Arizona, the instructional spending cost was $4,000. New York, it was still, it was nearly $16,000. And then support services uh, in 2016, Utah had the lowest. They spent just over $2,000 in support services, non-instructional spending per student. Like transportation and... and and it could be special ed, administration, yeah, okay. all those things. Uh, DC had the highest. They were spending 7600 per pupil in special support services. And so we can just take the $12,200 mark per pupil nationwide if we want to keep this simple. Um, and if we cut $5,000 out of that, for the special support services, the administration, all that stuff. We're basically saying average we're spending is about $7,000 a, a student on instruction. And I remember our old administrator used to always point to the Australian model. And I've never really looked into it myself, but he basically said, in Australia, the money follows the student wherever they want to go. So if we say nationwide, here's $7,000 per student, um, take it to where you want it to go. You know, there's a couple options. You can go to the local public school. You can go to a private parochial school. Uh, I know there's some, some hurdles there that people have with spending that money there. Um, there could be a, a charter school, whatever that looks like. Homeschool. I mean, can you imagine homeschool families spend a couple hundred dollars a year on their materials, but now you're giving them $7,000 to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but if you take it to something like a pod and say $7,000 a year for a pupil and you take 12 students, it's $84,000. You gotta buy your own benefits, your own health insurance, uh, maybe you want to go in with three other teachers and rent out a small office building, have 40 students between yourselves. Um, but again, class sizes is solved, teacher pay is solved, and now there's a lot more autonomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like it. I, I do like that concept. However, funding for schools is not on a national level, the vast majority, no. like 87% right. is via state and local taxes. And right. I'm just, I'm just saying taxes. the average, you know, yeah, take no, an average. I, I know, but I'm saying in Arizona <clears throat> on the, and I think we're on the same website here. Um, per total per pupil spending is $7,600. Yeah. Um, per in instruction per pupil is $4,000. So that average to get that same, $80,000, you'd have to have 20 kids, right? Yeah, but so Arizona, 
the cost of living is different than say California. So if you had 14 kids, which I'd say that's what I averaged most of the time when I was teaching in Arizona. Um, you know, now you're looking at closer to 60,000 with 14 kids. Yeah. Which again, I'd say that that was, I mean, pay wise was more than I was making. I don't know about benefits. I don't know where that would fit in. Yeah. Insurance. But then you also have to buy liability insurance. I mean, there's other things there. And I think that's the question is, um, it's not that it's a bad model. I think it's actually a very good model. However, if these are my tax dollars, and that's what it always comes back to, I want to make sure that teacher is qualified. Now, whatever that definition of qualified is, be it, do you just have to get a teaching degree? Do you have to take state certification tests? Do you have to go through some um, continuous education? Um, you know, wh- whatever that standard is, because I don't want just someone to start up a pod school in my neighborhood and say, hey, I'll take your kids for 8000 a pop um, without seeing some sort of due diligence on, on their part and on the part of the state um, to make sure that they're actually qualified to teach my child. Um, now, if it's a homeschooling, that's a little different because it's me and my child. But um, I, I would argue, Jake, that, that the way around that is using the, the homeschool uh, method. You know, in the state of Arizona, literally all you have to do accountability-wise in the state of Arizona to homeschool is sign an affidavit stating that you're going to teach math and science and history. That's it. Mm-hmm. And if, if you do a, a micro school or a pod school or whatever you want to call it and just say, hey, we're doing this as a homeschool, I, I, I think that that kind of answers that question, right? I, I think so. But here's something that I've learned since this pandemic. And it's something I've always believed, but now it's crystallized, is that I don't want to homeschool my kids because <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot separate dad from Mr. Ryan's. Like, I can't separate the two. It's impossible for me. I, God bless those that can effectively homeschool their kids. This guy ain't one of them. And my wife does an amazing job, but it's hard. Like, and she has to do it every day because she can't send the kids anywhere. Um, you know, I, I get to go to work and then I come home and I'll, I'll help where I can, but she's with them all day, every day. And she's doing the Lord's work right now. And it's just, that's something that I've always thought of is like, and I've always thought this before I even had kids and, and, you know, and then when we first had our kids, I'm like, I don't want to homeschool my kids. I don't want to teach my kids because it would be too hard for me to separate, but that's a personal thing. That's not urbane to what we're actually talking about no i'm totally Um, on board with you there i (laughs) okay (laughs) so um but i I think the the whole point i'm saying is the the freedom that that system allows i think is a great thing however i don't think that freedom should be absolute i I think if if teachers if if you took a public school teacher today and said hey you can now go open up a pod school or or micro school Um, I would still want some sort of accountability there um, to make sure that they're teaching you know I the thing I'd be concerned about and and concerned about is is just kind of my qualifier here is if we're making a barrier to entry that, that can keep good people out. Mm-hmm. And just because 
somebody has a fantastic um, teacher credential does not mean that they're good at their job or that the outcomes of their students will be good. Um, and, and if we're looking at like these pod schools, listen, um, I, I've been in a handful of schools, both through my actual teaching and student teaching and observations. Um, in a really great school, in a school with a strong culture, an okay, good, mediocre, maybe even a bad teacher can actually get by because the culture at the school is so good that they can't really screw it up. Uh, but if you're at a if you're at a good school, just an okay one where the culture is, you know, just fine. Um, a teacher who who can is not bringing positive culture. It 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 shows up really quick. And so, what can happen? I think in like these pod schools, whether it's like four teachers and forty kids or something, um, just having the credential might not be enough. It it won't be enough because if you don't bring good positive culture, um, that pod school is going to fail very quickly. Right, and and then the free market takes care of it. But we say right. that, and I think the best example we have of, I guess, school choice is charters. And depending on what state or district you live in, charters' success wildly varies. I mean, the great thing about a charter is if a charter fails, you can shut the charter down and then replace it with a new one. Um, but overall, charters don't perform better than public schools. There are better charters than public schools, like at the mm -hmm. top end, but charters There's on some average, at the low end too. Yeah, charters on average are comparable to public schools. Not, they're not as a whole better than public schools. Um, and I think the my concern with this model is that the communities that would be disadvantaged, that are disadvantaged now, would be further disadvantaged if we take dollars away from the, the traditional public schools in those communities and give them to micro schools, especially if there's no standard for what that micro school is. Um, we, we require standards for real estate agents. You know, you have to get certified. You have to go through the school. You have to get your license with the state. We have standards for the bar for attorneys. We have standards like that for medical, um, for doctors. And, and those are all professionals. If, and I still think it's important, whatever that standard is, that we have that in place, um, that the bar is higher. If you're taking money to educate someone else's kid, not yours, someone else's kid, you should have, be held to a high standard um, as an educator. Now, like you said, a credential doesn't mean you're a good teacher. It just means you have a credential. But... I yeah, say. yeah. I, <clears throat> just I, I think barriers to entry can be can be the problem, and barriers to entry oftentimes are put in place by either a corporation or a union or some group just to protect their not necessarily monopoly, but their kind of their hold onto an industry. I and mean, we are talking about an industry here, um, so I'd like to see those barriers to entry not so not so stringent necessarily because but, 
Um, there was, but, there but was the a barrier thing, to entry to teach at our at the private school we taught. Yeah, I mean, we, there, we had to get a teaching degree. Yeah, there like, there is a barrier to entry. I'm saying ones that that get convoluted and difficult. You know, if you've ever looked at getting credentialed in whatever state you're in, it it's a lot of paperwork, and none of that paperwork really says this person can teach kids and make them better. It yeah. just says they've jumped through all the right hoops. Now, another thing you said, um, uh, shoot, I forgot it. It was so good that you can't even yeah. remember it. That's I just can't refute it. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, you know, when you, you talked about taking money away from certain community schools that are, are you know, they need it. And it's like, well, if we've been pumping so much money into those particular districts in the hopes that it's going to turn something around, and we've been doing that for 30 years, I think it's time to try something different. Now, not that I want to take that away and, and push it towards, um, you know, people who already are in a great position with their schools, but we need to try something different. The local public schools in some, some districts and communities are utterly failing another million dollars will not make them better. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, it, it, they need to try something new. And if the union and the people holding on to the status quo simply say, we want more money, to do what? You're not doing anything new or different. So, um, and, and that's a big oversimplification. But, you know, it's frustrating to see people who are failing and a system that's failing in certain areas just want more money. Yeah. yeah, and and I think at the end of the day, who who has more incentive to make the education system better, the parents or the state? You know, and and if you put that, it, it's cliche, and and every pro school choice person ever has has said something to the effect of this. But you know, parents making decisions on behalf of their kids is a lot better than bureaucrats making decisions on behalf of the kids. So I'm I'm sensitive to what you're saying there, Jay, because if there's got to be some sort of um, oversight, and I agree, but I don't think that the state and local government is necessarily the best best, uh, entity to do that. I think we're starting to get into the philosophy question, which I want to get into. But I, I think... There is a direct correlation between money and performance. Arizona pays the least in the nation um, overall and third worst in the nation um, per pupil spending instruction. Um, now, is that, and, is that stat uh, pushed against standard of living? It's not. I'm just saying pure. Uh, and, and, and because I know the cost of living in Arizona is different than, say, California and New York. It's different um, than those two, but it's not that different from Wisconsin. It's not that different from okay, uh, you know, other states. So I, I, it's so low, and our ranking nationally, I think, is fiftieth, like as far as standardized test scores and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and graduation rates. So the numbers bear out that it's, um, if you spend more money, generally the schools will perform better. Um, or if you spend the least amount of money, your schools will suffer. Maybe not spending more is automatically means it's better. Um, but whereas New York, 
I think as a state, they're like 15th in the country rank-wise. And then specifically New York City, that school district is 8th in the nation overall, Mm -hmm. where they have the highest spending. Um, Yeah. So there is a direct correlation between the economics and performance, um, which is why I think so many charters want to get in on it is because there's money to be made there. Uh, And some charters do awesome, and they have a great philosophy and they have great standards. Um, but then there's other charters that do not. And, you know, they're, they're just and and maybe this is callous. They're just trying to make money. Yeah. Um, with taxpayer dollars, which is not right. And I, my fear is that with these micro schools, there's going to be a lot of great ones, but there's also going to be people that are just going to say, I'm just, yeah, I'll take $80,000 to educate your kid. Um, yeah. and, but there I mean, is no true education. The, the question was posed to me, um, by someone said, you know, basically, you know, if, if that offer came across your desk tomorrow, you know, a hundred grand to teach 10 kids for the next year, you know, what are you, what are you gonna, what are you actually going to, you know, what are you going to say? And part of me is like, well, Number one, I, I do enjoy what I do and the place I do it. And I do it for a very specific reason. Um, but, you know, it'd be hard to say no to that money. But at the same time, I also have to look at what's the sustainability of something like that. After those five or ten families go through my micro school, am I, can I sustain it for another, am I going to bring in new families? Like, how how is that going to work? Um if I have one bad experience with one of those families, it's over. So, um, you know, I, I just think that would be an interesting obstacle to, to overcome. Uh, so, you know, that question was posed to me, and I basically, I'm, a, I'm not, I'm not going to jump on one of those unless that's kind of the way the entire system starts going, and it makes sense to kind of, you know, be a uh, you know, contract teacher, you know, contract from year to year on, uh, you know, I don't know what you'd call that, but basically a freelance teacher. Right. Um, but to your point, Cameron, you said something about, you know, who's, who's, who benefits from education? Is it the parents or is it the the state? I, I do think there is an obligation for the country to educate its students well, to the students to understand the nation's history and its its workings, um, it's absolutely important. And so the state does have a stake in that. Um, although I'd say the parent stake is larger. Um, and again, that's that's kind of a different discussion. What I'm seeing on Edge Twitter is. Uh, Teachers are are turning their back on this nation's history and its workings. I, you know, this nation's founding, I'd say, and its workings. Um, not that not that the problems we have shouldn't be looked at, but if we're going to treat this nation with respect, in terms of hey, it goes away quick if we don't do this well, if we don't understand how this works and why it works this way, then the thing's going to come apart in a generation. Um, 
So the nation does have a, a large role to play in, in how do we want to educate the students in this nation. Yeah, and, and I always have a hard time with the nation at whole. I mean, uh, as a whole, who who does that mean? Does that mean the federal government? Does that mean the general public? Does that mean the the U.S. Department of Education? Um, it's it's a hard thing to say where that responsibility comes from because. Um, again, going down the philosophical road, you go into individual responsibility and, and where does that start? Where does that stop with, with parents? And ultimately, the reason that, that our country works is because the individual works and the individual is, is contributing. And, you know, that's why capitalism itself is so successful. Um, so while I don't disagree with you, I just don't... I, I also have a hard time saying the nation as a whole. Well, my point being that that the nation, the United States, benefits if everyone understands clearly what it means to be an individual with inalienable rights and that we all have equality under the law. And if those things are taught well enough and we can understand the history of it and how it's been mismanaged but also fought for and achieved by different people at different times and that we're still trying to reach that if we can as a nation teach that the united states will be better and so that's where the stake is if we're going to turn around and, and not teach those basic truths then then it all falls apart like we 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 do not have the luxury of rediscovering those truths um three generations later, because three generations later, the United States will not exist if we let it go. And I I think that this past couple minutes brings me to, I guess my point, and, and it's something that's been on my mind for a while, is <clears throat> I think we argue a lot about how education gets funded or what stands for a successful education. And I know you you alluded to it earlier, but we don't really ask, what's the point of education? Like, what's the end goal? And as a teacher, um, I think at going into it, I didn't really know. I'm like, well, they just need to know these things, right? Like, you need to know, the, and as a history teacher, it's a lot to easier to say. To cut me a paycheck, right? Yeah, you need to pay me. That's why. That's, that's what why the I got point in, is. That's what I got into education for was all that money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the point is, right, like as a history teacher and, and as a history major, it was easy for me to say, well, they need to know these things, these dates and these people and these events and these documents about our history um, to be educated in America. Um, and as a math teacher, you could say, well, they need to know this in algebra, this in geometry. And, and anyway, you, you can say all these things. And But the more I taught, and and since I've left education, the more I, I, I shifted on that. And I think, to me, it wasn't what do I know, but do I know how to think? Um, and the content became almost, almost secondary to am I able to think critically and to look at subjects and information within context and use that um, context to make decisions. 
um, and defend in my it. life. What was that? And defend it. And defend it, yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, well, what do you want your kid to be able to do when they graduate high school? Well, I want them to be able to function in the real world. And like, yeah, but that, that's a true answer, but it's kind of a vague answer. Um, and I think, to me, functioning in the real world is being able to think critically and take new information and use that and, and further and make better decisions in life and, and defend the decisions I make um, well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, the Greeks, you go back to the Greeks and people would say, well, I'm a, they had schools of thought, right? There's the Socratic method and there's the Aristotelian method and all these different schools of thought on reasoning and, and debate and knowledge. Um, but we don't really teach that. We say, well, you need, you know, you look at a state's standards for education. It's, you need to know all these things before you graduate. And teachers, you better teach them all. There's no way the teacher can teach all of those standards in a year. It's impossible. Um, so you have to pick and choose well, which ones matter the most. Um, and so I think before we figure out how to fund education or what schools work best or, or how schools change, I think we need to answer what's the point of public education and I think, or education in general. I think charters have the freedom, and this is what I like about charters, is they can say, we're a traditional academy. Um, one of the schools that we were looking at taking our daughter to is called Paideia, and they had a Socratic method, so their whole philosophy is Socratic. Um, others, you know, Christian schools have a, a Christian worldview and a Christian philosophy. Public schools, the mainstream public schools, are largely, well, you, you learn these things based on these standards, and then we give you a diploma. Um, and they don't have the freedom to be able to make those lateral shifts and, and build a philosophy um, for how they educate, be it school-wide or district-wide. Um, and I think that's, like you said, Eric, you know, before we keep funneling money into schools, how do we know that it's going to be different or better? Um, yeah. And I think that's a big question that, that all levels of schooling, be it public, private, or otherwise, need to be able to answer. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of public schools that have, have done fantastic things. And, and sometimes what it takes is is getting a an administrator in there who really wants to do something great. And, and you need great leaders who can, um, you know, I, I know you like Jocko Willink. Uh, Cameron, and one of the things he said that there are there are no uh, there are no bad teams. There's only bad leaders, right? So if you can get the right leader into some schools, and and there's stories all over the country about the right administrator showing up and turning either a school or a district around because their leadership, you know, it it cuts out the fat in in terms of the teachers who are who don't pull their weight and do the, do the best they can. And it empowers the best teachers. And that's true in, in any school, not just public. You know, I've, I've worked for a handful of administrators. And when one comes in who, who like, puts their finger on culture and says, this is our thing, you can tell. And you can tell it in the teachers around you. Um, but, yeah, when, Jake, you talk about, you know, what's the purpose of education, I think it is to have, you know, well-informed citizenry and 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 you know, citizenry who can make good decisions and think critically about things, 
um, have open civil discussions, um, those are important. And for a citizenry that can honor and cherish freedom, and to honor and cherish freedom requires that you have virtue. And it, it's more so, it's, it's, I think it's, it's a more critical thing than character. You know, we say character education. I, I think virtue education is more important. There is virtue in the world. To be virtuous means that uh, when you have that shopping cart and you've emptied it, you do take it back. It's mm-hmm. virtuous to do that. And you have the freedom to choose that virtue. And by choosing that virtue, you maintain the freedom just a little bit longer. Yeah. And you need to understand facts and truths of this world in order to do so. And that's part of what education does. But um, if we don't have a virtuous citizenry, then you can't have freedom. You have to have something to replace that freedom in order to, I guess, demand or enforce virtue, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, you can go either route, communism or fascism. and, and and so that's that's kind of what we're staring down as we look at this this upcoming fall where we don't know where education goes. We have to consider why are we doing education, and you know we're yeah we're caught flat-footed. Um, we need to have a plan coming up because parents want to do what's right. They want to provide for their families. They want their children to be educated. Uh, and it seems that they have to choose one or the other. Yeah. Right. Well, I Sounds think like a, a great, good place to wrap yeah, up. Yeah, it's a great place to end. Um, so, yeah, that was a lot of good stuff, guys. And uh, thank you all for listening. Um I think that's going to probably wrap up Pandemic to Progress. Uh, unless you want to go another three or four episodes on education, Eric, we can do it. But um, I, I might have I might have some research to do. So Okay. <laughs> um, so thank you guys for joining us, and be sure to tune in next time. We'll be talking about something new. And uh, this is Dad Bod History. Thank you. 